Hello, Good is in the Details listeners. We have a great episode with Dahlia Schweitzer. I just wanted to give a little note that for the intro, I was using a different recording feature and the audio is not all that great. Just a production note, but then the rest of it is just smooth, perfect, and Dahlia is amazing. Okay, and now let's get to the show. The way that the Black Dahlia was displayed is very reminiscent of a lot of surrealist art of that time. And a lot of surrealist art tends to portray women as objects and body parts. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Salat. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. All with the aim of a more knowledgeable life. A good life. We're talking about true crime again, Rudy. Yeah, I know. It's why <laughs> it's why I make this face after every time we analyze true crime and its impacts on society. I kind of make this face because you're right. This is about living a better life, a good life. But at the end of the day, it's about knowledge, and we happen to yeah. be kind of obsessed with why is everybody so focused on true crime? What is the allure of true crime? And truly, what is the history of true crime? And that's what this episode is about. We discuss the Black Dahlia murder, which was a horrible murder of Elizabeth Short in 1947, Los Angeles, right at the height of the film noir era. One of the most sensational cases ever in the history of uh, the United States, perhaps the world. I did not know that much about it. It was like just this vague thing. But I mean, I am, it's so gruesome. I'm glad we're doing an episode on it. <laughs> it's yeah. gruesome. And we're not just talking about the murder and the suspects and our thoughts on it. We are actually discussing the impacts of it. Yeah. Our intrigue. Intrigue, the, the brutal mutilation of this woman and how that actually played into what the feelings were towards women back in the 1940s, after World War II, what does that mean for today? And Dahlia, this is like her fifth time being on the show. She is now the most, she's the guest that's been on the show the most. She's one of my favorites. I am her number one fanboy, and I'm proud to say that. She Mm -hmm. she drafted this terrific article, and it's phenomenal for true crime nuts like myself, for people interested in the Black Dahlia case. And anybody out there interested in the sensation of true crime and the why of true crime? Dahlia is amazing. I mean, what a find. You know, I don't know if you remember the first time I told you about her. I had just gone to a conference and at the conference when they had people's books out and I picked up her book on going viral and then I showed it to you and you're like, get in touch with her. And we did. And now she's like our favorite guest. <laughs> she is. She, she is simpatico with us and we're honored to have her on again. Really think that true crime and Black Dahlia nerds out there like myself. I'm, I'm a, if no one else calls himself a nerd, that's fine. Uh, then I'm, I'm your nerd. We'll love this episode. And what she does fantastically, what she's done in every conversation with us and all of her, her writing, is that she is talking about how this fascination is a reflection of us. Yes. Where we are in our culture. So you're right. It's not just about the gruesome crime. It's about our intrigue, our fascination, what that says about us, that that's where our attention goes. Truly, this episode, the crime is, while it was a major crime, is a minor component of what we discuss. It really is a reflection on us, gain some knowledge about us, and that knowledge, while this is a gruesome discussion, knowledge still leads to a better life. Okay. Let's talk what are we going to call this? Let's talk about what true crime says about us with Dahlia Schweitzer. You like that? It works. 
So we've been doing kind of a series. It's been kind of unofficial, Dahlia, on true crime and the phenomena of true crime and, and the why of true crime and, and what's behind it. And your article takes one of, you know, the most horrifying, unsolved true crime stories ever. Just happens, so happens that it's based in Los Angeles. And yes, I'm a hardcore Angelino, et cetera, et cetera. It's like the perfect net of capturing everything it related with everything that's going on in the world regarding the explosion of true crime. I mean, you you explain in this article that true crime really, you cannot divorce the success of the podcasting industry away from the obsession with true crime. You tie the Black Dahlia to, uh, it's, it's almost like, you know, there's like Jack the Ripper and these other cases, but truly everything kind of percolates from the Black Dahlia case. And that kind of makes everything if you, you look historically at true crime, like you must kind of start really in the modern era with the Black Dahlia. And you do an excellent job with the, with this article of explaining it. So let me ask you a question. And I, I, we ask this to a lot of people. Why are you obsessed with the Black Dahlia? There is no easy answer for that. I'm sure partly it has to do with the fact that my name is Dahlia. There are not a lot of Dahlias out there in the world. And so, you know, whenever I run into one, it kind of sticks out to me. But I also have this fascination with sort of Los Angeles in the early 20th century and the beginnings of Hollywood and film noir. And, you know, we talked about my my book on private detectives in Los Angeles. And there's something that I've always been really interested in with the sort of the sort of the retro Los Angeles. And I feel like, you know, living in LA, it's such a weird place. You know, it's like I'm in New York now and New York history goes back so far, right? Whereas with LA, it's like LA history is tied to Art Deco and Bugsy Siegel and Lana Turner and like all these sort of like that that moment. It's always lurking. And so so part of it was just my fascination with that era. And then just kind of, I mean, by pure coincidence in Los Angeles from 2011 until I left in 2019, I lived around the corner from the house where I believe the Black Dahlia was killed, the George Hodel house. And I would walk my dog past this house multiple times a day. Did you get an eerie feeling, Dahlia, by oh, that house? Oh, that house is creepy. That house really? is creepy. Oh, my God. And you can see there are a lot of photos of it online. One of the nicknames of the house is the Jaws house. It's very weird kind of Aztec architecture, which doesn't fit with the surroundings at all. And then uh, the front of it has, it looks kind of like a shark's mouth because of the way that the stones are built. It's very weird. But if you Google, you know, Jaws house, you can see photos of it online. And I mean, I never had the privilege of going inside. I did have a friend who was like a floral designer who went in because he was doing a party and he said, like, you know, his skin would crawl when you walk into that. I mean, it's just there. I mean, even if George Hodel didn't kill the Black Dahlia, there is documentation, you know, of of his orgies. And I mean, it's, I always feel like, OK, so there are. They're always they're going to be a certain amount of rumors, but there's going to be a percentage of those rumors that just have to be true, right? I mean, you don't right. have someone who's completely 100% innocent, and then you have 30 rumors directed against them. So, and his his orgies definitely happened, and there have been so many testimonies from people who were either related to him, who lived in that house. I mean, you know, his son went on to you know write the Black Dahlia Avenger, and 
it's a very creepy house. To bring our audience kind of up to speed, because while you and I are like, right, sorry, know, yeah, kind of up here on the on the Black Dahlia knowledge. So Black Dahlia was 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 a woman, Elizabeth Short. She was murdered January nineteen forty seven. Her severed body was found in half um, in near Limar Park in present day Los Angeles. The crime has never been solved. But there have been theories all throughout the years. There are there are so many more books out there of people posturing of well this this person killed her and that person and James Elroy had his book and he had his whole Black Dahlia you know theories out there. But the number one suspect is a gentleman by the name of George Hodel, who who I believe worked in like the coroner's office or he had no 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 he was a he was a doctor. He was a he doctor. Was a do- venereal disease doctor. So yes. he, he, he but then some... he performed illegal abortions in That's the basement of this house. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry. Yep. And uh, But yeah, so just to kind of backpedal a little bit about the Black Dahlia, because yes, I, I forget that not everybody is familiar. And this is, again, again, it, it's like, it's the ripple effect. Prior to the Black Dahlia murder, there was this idea that Hollywood was a place that was, you know, sunshine and movie stars and palm trees, right? And this was the era of the studio system. This was the era when all the stars had their kind of their public personas that were carefully managed by the public relations departments, you know, and you could have Theda Barra, for instance, who had this very, very exotic public persona. She lived with her mother. I mean, these things were just, you know, this is, you can think of Marilyn Monroe, right? You know, as opposed to Norma Jean Baker, right? So this was the era where you'd never see Joan Crawford going to the supermarket, right? It was this very kind of carefully controlled image. And so everyone outside of LA who didn't know about the police corruption and all that had this idea of this sort of sunshine and perfection. And so the Black Dahlia murder was again, also a turning point because it got uh, attention throughout the United States. And so it was this kind of this scandal where people realized like, oh, LA is actually dangerous, you know, and that Hollywood has this sort of like sordid underbelly. Again, that was kind of part of the turning point. But one of the things that was really interesting about the Black Dahlia is that the case has never been solved. That has, and there are a variety of reasons why it hasn't been solved, which we can kind of get into. Uh, but it was never solved. And so it's really taken on a life of its own in the years since. And everyone has their own theory about who did it. One of the things that I talk about in my article is approximately 500 people so far have confessed to killing the Black Dahlia. And a lot of these people weren't even alive. You know, they're kind of people who were seeking attention. Like, you know, obviously these are not all plausible people. But because it hasn't been solved, it's created this whole industry. And that's something else that I find really fascinating is this industry has taken on a life of its own that's completely separate from the human being, Elizabeth Short. Nobody knows much about her biographical information. Very few people even know where the Black Dahlia nickname came from. There's been all these kind of urban legends that have been passed around so many times, like every, like, you know, one of the popular elements of her story is that she was an actress. She wasn't an actress, but that's just kind of been stuck on. And then it just, you know, kind of keeps getting transmitted over and over again. That's right. I was in in preparing for this. I went onto YouTube and I watched some videos and, and one of the facts is, Oh yeah, she was an actress, except nobody has any record of any auditions that she's ever done. So it's like, nah, that's kind of interesting. But but she but but she could have looked like an actress, right? Her look Well, she was, was very glamorous, but there's yeah. lots of glamorous people who aren't actresses, you know? And even the fact that nobody knows for sure, like there isn't clear 
proof of where the nickname came from. Like even the nickname itself is ambiguous. And there are some people who say it was given to her um, when she was still alive at this drugstore that she hung out. And then there are other people that say it was given to her by the press after death. I mean, just really basic by like, we're not talking about like who was her high school boyfriend, like really basic details that are vague and unclear. And for our audience who may not be film noir nerds, like, well, I'm a nerd. I'm not, I can't, well, we'll not call you a nerd, but I'm a film noir nerd. The Blue Dahlia is a very well-known film noir film with Veronica Lake that some people say was that, that her name was kind of taken from that, if you will, that because that movie was out and about and around during that era. My question in your essay that is really haunting for me, but is this the aesthetics of the murder? The way in which she's propped up like a doll that that lends itself to the allure. So it's, and you're emphasizing that this is a human. And the irony is that most white women aren't actually murdered, but they are the ones who are highlighted and that it might even be possible because of the fair skin and you can see more bruising and things like that, that there's like this, I, I don't, I don't know how else to put it other than there's an aesthetic to the corpse that is drawing people in. So I was just wondering if you could expand on that and how this relates to the way in which women are viewed, that this is one way in which women are viewed as a thing and as a body. You know, in, in feminist theory or a lot of people asking about equality, they often talk about legal equal rights where there has been obviously a lot of headway. Something that is not really discussed nearly enough is the cultural hurdles. And to me, this is an example of the cultural hurdle where the woman's body is seen as an object and then the corpse is looked at as a doll or as intriguing. And there doesn't seem to be anything like grotesque about, you know, looking at or being attracted to or drawn to this bizarre thing where the person is turned into like, like an art piece almost. Yes. First of all, I'll kind of start with the last thing you said, where you said that she's displayed like an art piece almost. And I would argue that she is displaced like an art piece full stop. Uh, and that's one of the things that I unpack in the article that I found really interesting. And again, even if you don't think that George Hodel is the one who killed her, which is, you know, your prerogative, one of the, the justifications or the arguments for why it was George Hodel was that he was good friends with a lot of the surrealist artists. He was good friends with Man Ray. They would come to his sort of hedonistic parties. So again, even if you remove George Hodel from the equation, the way that the Black Dahlia was displayed is very reminiscent of a lot of surrealist art of that time. And a lot of surrealist art tends to portray women as objects and body parts. First of all, the way that the Black Dahlia body was found, for those who don't know, when she was first seen by the passerby, she was described as being a broken mannequin that there was no blood. And I think that's another reason why, I mean, it's it's grotesque, but we forget that Elizabeth Short was a real human because the body has been stripped of its humanity in that there is no blood, that it was bathed basically in gasoline. So there were no fingerprints. I mean, it's just this immaculate white object. And then you have her arms were kind of uh, arranged so that they were over her head. And then very famously, the corners of her mouth were sliced, sort of extending her smile to her ears. And then 
random pieces of flesh had been removed from her breasts and thighs and was sort of positioned on her intestines, which were a foot away from the upper part of her body. As I mentioned, the body had been drained of blood, so it was just completely, completely white. She did look like a doll, but then going back to the way that she was arranged, Man Ray actually has a painting called Black Widow, where the subject, a woman, has her arms above her head in exactly the same way as the Black Dahlia. And in the painting, the legs are spread apart exactly like the Black Dahlia. He also has photographs like Minotaur, where the arms are also raised at exactly the same angles as the Black Dahlia corpse. There are even Man Ray images that have those sort of grotesque, large smile like the Black Dahlia. He has some images where women are sliced in parts. So does Salvador Dali. So it's very much kind of reminiscent of the style of surrealism. And then what's crazy, and this is something that I, I get at, which I'm always fascinated by, is this sort of life imitating art, imitating life kind of vicious cycle where you could argue that the, the way that the Black Dahlia was arranged would then go on to inspire other artists. So Marcel Duchamp has a photographic installation where a woman's body is sort of arranged in exactly the same way that Elizabeth Short's body was. So there's no question that whoever killed her intended to display her body as an object, you know, really stripped her of any kind of humanity and obviously wanted her body to be discovered. Like there was no attempt to hide the body. It was all very elaborately sort of displayed. So definitely a work of art presented as a work of art, which I think has contributed to the fact that when we talk about her, we forget that she was a human. But then going back to the paleness of her skin, another reason why I think, you know, she's had this mystique is, and again, she was whiter because she was drained of blood, but she had, you know, this kind of alabaster skin and this jet black hair, which she, you know, she died and she often wore black clothes. So she had this very kind of striking visual aesthetic when she was alive, which continued into her death. And this idea of the sort of the white, white body lends itself to the sort of the gothic impact, where, as you said, you see the bruises, you might see the scars, the slashes, you know, it's, it's going to be more dramatic. And also remember, you know, these photos were all black and white during the time of the discovery of her body and her death, you know, so if you kind of imagine black and white newspaper, the black and white photos, and it's all, you know, the white, white body with the black slashes. But Barbara Klinger kind of references the ubiquity of the white female victim with the acronym WFV for white female victim. And what's interesting beyond that is she refers to the, the white female victim as a gateway body, because you're never really interested in the person who became the white female body, the white female body becomes, you know, like if you think of an episode of like CSI or Criminal Minds, it's like you discover the body within the first five minutes, and then that triggers the rest of the story. So it's a gateway, the body becomes a gateway into this larger story, which is why you can kind of overlook any biographical details that have to do with the the person who was killed with the white female victim. Yeah, it's something that I like about your work is that it's talking about what our fascination with this says about us. I mean, because there are many deaths, there are many murders, there are many mutilations, but the way in which we have a fixation on some, what is that revealing about us? Just as a, as a side note, I was just um, at the University of Helsinki, there was the Simone de Beauvoir conference was held there. 
And I've been fascinated by one of Beauvoir's novellas called The Woman Destroyed, which is told in this first person narrative. And it seems like a story, what this first person is describing going on in her life. But when you realize is that everything that Monique, the narrator, is describing is actually a reflection of what she chooses to experience and how she experiences the world. Everything that she is focused on is really an expression of herself. And so I think in the broader context with to relate to this is that this fascination is not just about the murder, but that it's about us. I'm glad that you um, have that takeaway from my work because for me, that's a through line in everything that I do. I got in trouble for it when I was getting my PhD, where I would, I had this one professor who would give me such a hard time because she would say, you know, you're a film scholar, your work needs to start with the text. And I disagree because for me, I don't start with the movie. I start with what was happening at the time that this movie was made, right? So you can't talk about Night of the Living Dead without talking about the Vietnam War. The idea of just doing this sort of close analysis of Night of the Living Dead and just talking about, you know, mise-en-scene, camera angles, editing, whatever, to me is like, like it's like you're not going anywhere, right? It's like it's like getting on my spin bike and doing a class. Like, yeah, it's kind of fun for my body, my brain, whatever, but like it doesn't get us anywhere, right? Night of the Living Dead becomes interesting when you talk about its relationship to civil rights, when it be, you talk about its relationship to the Vietnam War, when you talk about its relationship to our fears of, of radiation, right? That's when you're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting because, of course, film and television, it's a mirror, right? They, they reflect us, you know? So for me, I'm never going to just start with Night of the Living Dead, right? I'm going to start with what was happening in America in 1967, because you have to understand that in order to understand what George Romero was experiencing when he then made this movie. And then you have to understand what audiences were experiencing when they went to see this movie. And so in all my work, it's all about, okay, these stories are cool, but what do they say about us, right? There's a reason why zombie movies become really popular during times of war, right? That to me is a very interesting aspect of zombie movies. So I always say, I'm not, I guess, I, I mean, according to this professor, I'm not a classical film scholar, but I always feel, and I've kind of always felt like I'm an alien on this planet. And there's so many things about human nature and the world that don't make sense to me. And I find them really strange and puzzling. You know, and like with my Going Viral book, one of the questions was, why are we so freaked out about Ebola when Ebola is really not a threat to us, right? But we have all these movies that are all about Ebola. And I was like, this is really weird. Why are we so afraid? And so I analyze these sort of cultural phenomenons or these movies or these television shows, try to understand what is happening off the screen, right? So the movies and the TV shows become time capsules, these sort of like manageable bite-sized microcosms that I can then unpack to understand these weird behavioral patterns that people have. What is interesting to me about the Black Dahlia is obviously she was a real person, not a movie or a television show. I've never written an essay exactly like this because I don't really talk about a movie or a television show. I'm talking about this person who 
like lost her humanity in her evolution into being this cultural phenomenon, but the cultural phenomenon became a cultural phenomenon because of movies like film noir and radio broadcasts and television shows. So it becomes, it's like this weird, it's almost like this like Venn diagram. So I think that's part of the reason why maybe I had such a hard time writing this article. I loved what you wrote in the article, your observation of the time frame, the time capsule of why film noir was popular, what was going on in the psyche, in particular in the psyche of men. For example, in your article, you say this film period of 1941 to 1958, the phrase was coined, film noir was coined by the French, French critics who, who got a whole bunch of movies from America that they couldn't see when they were under Nazi occupation. They were like, gosh, things are really dark in, in America right now, or uh, the, the movies that are produced there. That's That's why it's called film noir. And this line that you wrote, which was, Excellent, Dahlia. I haven't seen this in all the film noir scholarship that I've read before. I don't know why, but when men returned and found themselves displaced, displaced by women who were in the workplace that were kind of taking care of the country while they were away. And when men when men returned from the war. From the war, from World War II. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, was, when men returned from World War II, it created a masculinity crisis explored through films of that era and quite often through noir films. I love that. And I think that that outside feeling, the feeling that you're on the outside, the feeling that you don't belong is a, is a big theme in film noir. So how does all of that work with what happened with, with Elizabeth Short? Like how do the two work together? As I was telling you before we started to record at the beginning of this recording, the way that you married the two together, I haven't read it written so well before and beautifully. So how did you come up with it? Part of it goes back to what I was saying before about the white female victim. And another thing that I talk about in the article is this concept of corpse porn, which is when you have this sexualized combination of violent death with this really graphic corpse. And again, I think this is something that's so fascinating to me about the Black Dahlia is that she's become sexualized, right? And like how many other people who are brutally murdered like this isn't like, you know, someone who like, you know, died of like typhoid on a fainting couch or something, right? This is someone who was literally slashed into pieces, has become like Dita Von Tees has a lingerie line named after her. I mean, it, it's taken on these very sort of like romanticized, sexualized connotation, which is just so weird. Part of that also goes back to this crisis of masculinity, because that's where the character of the femme fatale comes from this idea of the sort of sexy and powerful woman being seen as a threat. You have this trope in film noir of this sexy and powerful woman who gets in the way of the male protagonist, does bad things, or at the very least somehow impedes his storyline and has to be removed. And double indemnity is always sort of, you know, noir 101 right but this idea of this woman who wants to kill her husband in order to get the insurance money and this poor insurance agent that she somehow suckers in to helping her pull this off this idea of woman as being a threat but also this fetishization of female bodies because of course when you're threatened by someone a really easy recourse is to turn them into an object and so it's this objectification of women and then going back to what I was saying about surrealist art and this idea of, you know, again, if something is threatening to you, chop it up into body parts. This prevalence in art, not just of, you know, naked female bodies, which has existed since the before times, 
but this idea of a female body that's been chopped up into pieces. Great job tying that together. Great, great job. And you, th- th- thank you. Like that, that was, that was amazing. <laughs> but also going back to the fact that she's known as the Black Dahlia and not Elizabeth Short, a human being who at one point had agency. What you said here in, in terms of, you know, a lingerie line or that it is sexualized, is it what is getting, is that when we're, it is revealing what we mean by sexuality when it comes to women and that sexuality when it comes to women means to be doll-like you know, I teach a philosophy of sex and love and that the notion of woman's sexuality is without agency. She is passive. Like sex is something that is done to her. She's not an active participant. And that invades all sorts of ways in which from photography to modeling to the way selfies are taken, the way women take selfies, where a lot of times the, the camera will be angled up. So it looks like they're looking in, look looking up. So it's the appearance of somebody looking down on them. And that's considered to be feminine. That even saying that this is sexual should really stop and make us think like, wait a minute, sexuality for women means the more object like you are, that is what is appealing. And that is what is just like, is so upsetting. And I'm just wondering in terms of, in terms of a corpse, this is also what's on my mind. And I'm trying to think of some examples here, but of where if there were a corpse found, let's say a, a male corpse or something like that, if somebody would be like, no, 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 no photos or don't disrespect the body or have some respect, like that's not really there for her. Like there's no sense of, of respect of don't photograph, don't redo this. Don't make it a Halloween costume. Like, whereas with other bodies, it doesn't seem like it would have the same kind of traction. Well, I mean, just, just think about how laughable it would be if we, let's say, I mean, and again, there's something to be said about this, you know, our legacy of, of murdered white women, let's say, you know, Henry Smith is a man who was murdered and his body is chopped up into pieces. You're never going to have Henry Smith cologne. It doesn't work that way. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear that for what it's worth. I don't, I I don't wear cologne uh, and I kind of stay away from people, but, uh, but not to make, not to make a joke of it. No, I would definitely not. But, but when you put it into that context, the fact that there's a black Dahlia perfume or something along those lines is like, it's really, it's pretty upsetting. What about a line of boxers? Of like, yeah, the, I mean, it's like if you if you just no, nope, don't don't wear boxers either. But that's a whole. We're not we're not going we're not going down the the road of what Rudy's lingerie here. Okay, no, no. But really, I mean, thank you, Dahlia, because I I am upset when you guys put it into that context. It's it's really upsetting. You know, in the article, I quote Edgar Allan Poe, who writes, "The death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world." I mean, could you imagine if someone wrote, you know, "The death of a man is the most"? I mean, it just it doesn't work. Because as you said, there's something so inherent about women that they're, you know, beautiful, supine, you know, scantily clad. I mean, you have the whole man is the subject, woman is the object. You know, I mean, we can pull out old Laura Mulvey, right? I mean, it all just the active man, the passive woman, man, you know, the woman is to be looked at, the man does the looking. I mean, this is like so hardwired into our DNA. So why are women the, your opinion, Dahlia? Why are women the highest consumers of true crime then? Is it your opinion that they're, they're learning in order to protect themselves? Are they learning to like what not to do? I'd love to hear your thoughts. I researched that because it is it is an interesting question. And one of the, I don't know if it's surprising, but a very common answer is that they are learning the skill set. They are learning what to do in this situation. And, you know, again, not all of this is, is conscious. Like they might not be, 
you know, watching it and, and like, you know, jotting stuff down on a list. But part of it is this, and you know, women tend to emotionally empathize, we connect, whatever. But so there's this connection with the victim. How can I avoid being the victim in that situation? And also, you know, I always want to go back to to horror movies and this idea of, you know, Robin Wood's The Return of the Repressed and the fact that we love horror movies because we can experience these things that we're curious about while still being perfectly safe, right? So I think women, I mean, you know, I, I feel like every woman knows, you know, if you walk down a dark street at one in the morning, you're a little bit at risk, right? We all know this. It's always going to be on the radar. And so to hear these stories about other people who experience these things that could happen to us, but we're experiencing them from the safe remove of our home or car or wherever you're listening to these stories. It's the same thing that thrills us about horror movies, right? Where we can experience the adrenaline while still being safe. So I think part of it is that thrill. And then also part of it is educational. And then as women, we sort of, you know, identify with the victims. And then honestly, it's interesting because I was kind of thinking about this myself, you know, like, what is it that's interesting to me when I watch a movie that's sort of based on a true story? And I think it's also that we're so overstimulated in the 21st century and we've become so desensitized to so many things because you have to be desensitized to make it through the day and not have like, I don't know, neurological over overdose. And so we've become kind of numb and there is this sort of added layer of kind of sensation that comes from knowing, oh, this really happened, you know? And so I watch these sort of, uh, I don't really tend to watch the documentaries. I tend to watch sort of like the movie versions or whatever, um, but just knowing like, oh, this really happened and being able to sort of like Google it and look up at the Wikipedia page and see where the person is now and what prison they're in. Like, I just feel like it, it kind of breaks through the numbness a little bit. In your opinion, what makes, when it comes to true crime, what is a way to respectfully, like, can you think of somebody who's done it well to respectfully tell the story? Because there has to be an element of storytelling in order for true crime to be true crime. Or in your opinion, can you think of somebody who got it way wrong? Because there seems to be something also problematic about it, about using the somebody's tragedy as a production company that's then going to make money and needs advertise, advertisers, sales. Like, that's what we're talking about when you're putting on a true crime, you know, either podcast or documentary. So can you think of somebody who does it well or maybe somebody who doesn't do it well? For not doing it well, I can say that the, the Dahmer Netflix miniseries is a very clear example. I have not watched it, but I have read protests by victims or victims' families just kind of talking about how violated they feel and how they weren't consulted when it came out. And and then I think there's also something to be said for, you know, like when they, they there's like a terrorist attack, you know, and then you, you have the name of the terrorist is sort of repeated over and over again. And then they become almost kind of like a, a cult hero in certain circles. And it's just kind of like enough with the name Dahmer. I do feel like those things are less interesting uh, I mean, I just feel like when people are killed, I don't know, I just kind of feel like it. there is no right way to do it. You know, there is no respectful way to do it because it's going to be upsetting to the victims. When I watched The Staircase, again, I didn't watch the documentary, I watched the miniseries, you know, and I just felt like so many of the staircase narratives were like, well, the husband did it, the husband did it, the husband did it. 
And then I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, actually, it was never conclusively said that the husband did it, you know? And so I just, I feel bad for, like, I kind of, once I realized that I stopped watching it and I just feel bad for the kids. And I don't know, I just kind of feel like there's no right way to do it in those situations. I think the ones that are interesting are, you know, like the movies about Elizabeth Holmes. Those are interesting. Well, something you tapped into in your essay was that the appeal is also this, the audience participation in becoming the sleuth also. I thought that was really interesting that that's the difference between true crime and let's just say any kind of a detective story. Right. But then that's the unsolved. Yes. So obviously with Jeffrey Dahmer, we know that Jeffrey Dahmer did it. But yes, I think when you have the unsolved ones, I think that's very appealing. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Black Dahlia has had this longevity I mean, I talk about only murders in the building, but I think that's this, the allure of the, the podcast, the true crime podcast, where the case hasn't been solved. You don't know who did it. And there's this idea that you or I could figure it out. You know, I mean, that's where you go back to like serial and like, you know, this idea of like, oh, I'm going to correct the course of justice through my podcast. And, you know, I think that's that's something that's very, very compelling about true crime because those are real people. And so... Yeah, so that's very different than the Dahmer because that's this idea of it's like it's unsolved and you do kind of feel almost like you're like this vigilante where you're like, I'm going to do something about this unsolved case. And there are stories of, you know, podcasts hosts, podcast hosts who, you know, solved the case or just by virtue of bringing attention to the case and more eyeballs got the case solved, you know, so 20 years later, somebody gets arrested that's definitely a whole level of interest that you're never going to have with fiction. Mm -hmm. Dahlia, thank you so much. I want to just let you know that my students for my philosophy of sex and love class, which has now been renamed Contemporary Debates and Sexuality, but they read chapters five and six of your book on um, LA Private Eyes, and they love it. And they give presentations where they have to pick their own detective type story and it can reach back to any point in time and use your book as the the foundation for the analysis of the women and the men in the film. And they all have this aha moment and this fun moment of putting together this genre and gender stereotypes or ideas about men and women. I love that. So I had to let you know like that they... Um, it's a very, very fun thing that's been introduced in my class in the last couple of semesters, and I'll keep doing it. So your work, that's so great. You know, Rudy's not just the big fan. Like, there's a lot of people <laughs> that have really, really enjoyed your work. That's really wonderful to know. And that, I mean, that goes back again to what you were saying about, you know, what does this say about us? You know, it's, it's sort of being, that's the million dollar question. And so it's like, what does it say about us that we can't have an effective female private eye? What does that say about us? What does it say about us that we're still talking about the Black Dahlia so many years after she was murdered? You know, it's like, what does it say about us? Great essay, Dahlia. Great essay. Thank you so much. I absolutely loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're enjoying the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Or take a screenshot of this episode or your favorite episode and tag us on Instagram. Good is in the Details pod. We've got a website up now, goodisinthedetails.com. You can also check us out on Patreon. I added a new book to the book 
club, support Good is in the Details, and share your thoughts on the extra content. Good is in the Details is partnered with Newsly. It's that all-in-one super app for iOS and Android, where you can listen to your news in a natural human voice. Listen to news about law, transportation, true crime. You could also listen to Good is in the Details. Use offer code THEDETAILS for one month free premium subscription. This episode of Good is in the Details is sponsored by AvonmoreInc.com. Are you planning a bridge party? Do you know anyone who plays bridge? You gotta check out AvonmoreInc.com. They've got smart color playing cards, which are also fantastic for kids. They have the coasters, the tallies, napkins, anything that you need for your next bridge party or that person in your life who loves bridge. Go to avonmoreinc.com and let them know that good is in the details sent you. Okay, until next time. Bye.